Welcome to Next CLT. Next CLT is a business development initiative that focuses on strengthening companies owned by Black, Indigenous people of color in Charlotte. Hello, Podcast Nation. This is Next CLT's conversation with Malobi Achike. She's an attorney, an ardent diversity, equity, and inclusion ambassador. With over 15 years of working in corporate legal tech space and in the private practice spaces as well. She's passionate about working with organizations to usher in changes that will sustainably impact the diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts within their organization. She's currently the CEO of DEI Directive. Malobi, what is happening in this DEI space that businesses, government, organization, entrepreneurs should be thinking about? Yeah. Uh, hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be having this conversation with you. Um, so, yeah. So, DEI, you know, it's... Uh, it's been around for a really long time, right? We've had uh, various iterations. It, you know, at first it was diversity, then diversity and inclusion, uh, now diversity, equity, and inclusion. In some cases, DEI, B, B for belonging or access or mental health. So different variations, but really at the core, uh, DEI is about humans, right? It's about the people that are working in these establishments, in these organizations, um, and really ensuring that everybody feels like a sense of belonging within the organization, feels like they are included, they are expected to be there, and they also have access to opportunity, uh, you know, just like everybody else within the organization, whether to get promoted to a higher level, to get equal pay as the next person for the same job. Uh, these are all the different pieces of DEI. And uh, obviously, as we sort of see this evolution in the way humans think about work um, and think about, you know, the role that their work life or where their work life fits into their larger, um, you know, life, um, there's more and more uh, people being vocal uh, as far as really wanting to work in an environment that is in alignment with their individual uh, perspective and principles but also in a place where they feel comfortable and feel like they can truly thrive uh, within that space. Hey, you know, you talked about the different shifts, right? Uh, belonging. What is belonging? How do people kind of like look at belonging when it comes into that space? You mentioned that. I just want to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So belonging, you know, it, it just means like I feel that before I arrive, the organization has given some thought into what somebody like me would need to feel like I belong, right? Um, so, for example, if you look at a work, uh, you know, space that maybe has no accommodations for people with physical disability, well, if I arrive there and now I have to figure out how to you know, um, um, get from one floor to the next and there are no accommodations, like no elevator and yet is a five-floor or five-story building, you can see how I'm not necessarily going to feel like I belong, right? There, there hasn't really been any thought uh, or proactiveness in really trying to figure out um, all of the different facets of what I need as somebody 
within this demographic and with these characteristics to feel like I belong. Um, so belonging, uh, again, it's more holistic though. This is just one facet of it, but it's also belonging as far as like when you think about, you know, uh, in terms of equity, right? Um, and all other facets. But but that's sort of like a, a, a generalization of, of what belonging is. Wow. Wow. So it almost makes you think about representation matters because somebody before would have thought about those kind of things if they yeah. were included, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and I love what you just said because you hit the nail right on the head, right? Representation matters um, because, again, if you don't um, have any of those characteristics or belong within specific demographic uh, uh, groups, it, it's probably likely that you're going to have some blind spots, right? Um, it doesn't make you a bad person. It's just, it's not something that you as an individual are having to contend with in your daily life or something that you have a lived experience on. Um, but of course, if you have a diverse workforce or diversity in the people that are making these decisions, then there's going to be a higher likelihood that somebody would think about something that a homogeneous group would otherwise not think about. And so what you end up, what, what ends up happening is that those workplaces or you know, work groups that are largely heterogeneous, um, there's going to be a, a higher tendency for them to be more accommodating because they've been able to anticipate uh, some of these challenges or uh, elements um, and they can be proactive on it. Hey, when you think about blind spots, et cetera, what are some new trends? I mean, you're in that DEI tech space. What are some new trends in the DEI space? Yeah, so new trends in the DEI space, um, I would say um, actually taking DEI seriously. <laughs> uh, believe it or not, like I, ta I, ta I, like I mentioned earlier, um, DI has been along for a very, very long time, right? Um, but I think it's really more recent that organizations are really starting to understand the de depths of how or why DEI is critical uh, for their business, right? So moving beyond sort of like the ethical and moral obligation and the obligation as a member uh, or as a, you know, uh, a fixture of the community, uh, organizations are understanding more the, you know, the business justification. So the fact that it drives uh, employee engagement it, and when you have engaged employees, it drives productivity. Uh, it also drives innovation, right? Um, and all of that uh, also kind of contributes to uh, reducing turn employee turnover and, you know, um, attrition for the organization. Um, so that's definitely, you know, a trend. I mean, uh, obviously, one of the things that helps that trend is also the pressures that organizations are feeling uh, from not only employees, but their clients, investors, uh, board members, stakeholders. Uh, all of that is really driving organizations to think more uh, thoroughly about DEI um, and what they want the DEI health of their organization to be. And then start designing programs that are that go beyond just like one training, right? Because that's not going to do it. Um, but designing something that is highly strategic uh, and therefore likely to 
result in real impact that is sustainable long-term. Um, along those same lines, I will say that probably one of the biggest uh, thing that has emerged, especially over the last you know, few years, um, as DEI sort of moved from uh, you know, backseat to you know, really kind of taking center stage in organization conversation is the data piece. The data piece. Um, data is absolutely critical. Um, and if you look at you know, all the other things that organizations have to grapple with, so if you think about organization and you know, how they manage their revenue attainment or any other thing that they take seriously and want to actually impact, there is a data piece to it, right? There's never an organization that said, oh yeah, we're going to sell lots today or this year. And then everybody is sort of like on board, right? They quantify what that sale needs to be. So what's the dollar amount of that revenue uh, goal for the year? And not only do they do that, they also break it down by who is responsible for what amount. And then collectively, each of us are really informed on what our part or role is to helping the organization get to that larger goal. Um, and so organizations are realizing that they really need data to not only understand and diagnose where the organization currently is, but also to define where they want to go and then be able to create strategies um, that are based on or grounded in evidence and data um, to get from point A to B. Hey, you know, you said several things in there that made me think, right? So, you know, when you talk about uh, this whole thing about data, people want it to be measurable. So our businesses talk about the ROI, but in our company culture, our country culture, et cetera, all these things come into play. And, you know, sometimes people uh, look at emotional things, but don't quantify it. How do we uh, quantify some of the the reason for DEI. What's the why in DEI? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question, Eric. Um, and there are lots of whys, right? Um, and uh, fortunately, at this stage, there's also been a significant amount of research uh, done by various various reputable uh, organizations, um, not only within the United States, but on a global scale, uh, about the whys for DEI, right? So first of all, right, I mean, there's the moral slash ethical obligation. It's simply the right thing to do, right? Um, nobody wants to not have a seat at the table. Nobody would opt to get paid less for doing the same job. Um, you know, so I think we can kind of all recognize on a human level that, you know, if when given both options, like get less pay for the same job uh, or get more, we would obviously want to get more. So then why not just have everybody get the same pay for the same job uh, if they have the same experience? Um, so, you, you know, beyond um, sort of the moral obligation, uh, there's a ton of research on the business case for DEI. Um, and so you can look at, you know, organizations study that, um, McKenzie, you know, Gartner, um, lots of organizations have done studies on it that really show that when organizations have diversity, so again, diversity is not the same as inclusion or equity or, or belonging, but when, when organizations have diversity, there is a likelihood to see uh, better financial performance for the organization 
higher rates of innovation. Um, and in fact, the numbers actually show that, you know, uh, this McKenzie study specifically, for organizations that had um, higher race and uh, et ethnic diversity, they actually had overall 35% um, 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 outperformance of those that were in the bottom quartile. Um, and then if you took that study and kind of looked at it through the gender lens, that overperformance was 25%. So those are those are solid numbers, right? And, and, and if you think about it within the context of um, just how competitive um, everything is, so organizations are always looking for, you know, even the tiniest of things that can give them that mild competitive edge, uh, you know, uh, above another competitor within the same industry. And so if you, if you look at that and think, oh, wow, like just by embracing and bringing in more people into the fold of our organization, we are able to, you know, kind of like get to that next level, uh, then it becomes very, very compelling. Uh, to to start embracing and doing, you know, things like that. And then, of course, if you're thinking about the globalization effect, right? I mean, the world is getting smaller and smaller. And especially these days now where remote uh, work is something that is, you know, more and more common. And you're going to, you know, you're having people sort of like migrate to different uh, parts of the country to do the same job or organizations taking on more international employees, that even makes it more imperative, right? That that organization is working proactively to ensure that the culture uh, and that the work environment is ready for these employees. I hear you with what you're saying and I understand it. But if I'm the lay guy on the street, you know, when you look at DI within the larger context of like the January 6th event that happened, uh, and you start seeing all this microaggression in this space. How do you kind of like reply to the layperson who is eh, not really looking at the McKinsey report, et cetera? You know, but when you have programs and DI initiative, they, they come up with saying, uh, we should make the programs available to everybody. Kind of like Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. What do you say to that layperson? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's sort of like one of the really unfortunate uh, trends. Um, I I don't even know that I could call it a trend, but it's definitely something that we are seeing um, at scale, right? It's it's notable for sure, um, and it's unfortunate because what's happened is DEI has ultimately been politicized, um, and because it's been politicized you have people ascribing to it things that it simply is not, right? Um, I mean, I think just uh, a few weeks ago, um, you know, there was in, in the news that, you know, the Florida governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, is basically, you know, uh, planning to block like state colleges from having uh, sort of like DEI programs, right? Mm -hmm. Um and you have, you know, some of these like, you know, movements that you're seeing, you know, it's not like sort of like one big well-oiled machine, but you definitely see that rhetoric repeated um, across the country. Here's what I would say. First of all, DEI is about people, right? Um, and so, so long as we have people working within organizations, you're going to need DEI. Now, let's go a step back, right? 
when you look at the status quo in the country, and when I mean this, I mean, look at the data and look not just within one industry, look across industries, across different sizes of organizations, uh, across any location in the U.S., one of the things that you're going to find, and uh, the McKinsey study, uh, one of McKinsey studies from uh, 2021 actually did a really good job of illustrating this. So at the entry level, you have sort of probably the widest breadth of representation. There's still some gaps, but at least, you know, it, it's pretty wide where you have a larger number of demographics represented. And then you watch what happens as you accelerate or go up that organizational ladder. Um, and what you notice is that every single demographic loses ground except for white male. So I believe, um, if, I, if my memory serves me right, at that entry level, uh, white male comprise about 35, 30-something percent of the, of the hires. And by the time you get to the C-suite level, they comprise 62%. And when you combine white women and men at the entry level, I believe white women were sitting at about 20, low 20-something percent. At the you know, C-suite level, they're at, at 20-something percent again. So that means the white population at that highest level is make up 82% of C-suite positions. Now, keep in mind in the U.S., people of color, so underrepresented groups outside of white women, uh, comprise 42% of the population. So you look at that and then you see this trend play out from organization to organization across industries, across location, um, it's pretty much the same story for the most part. And it's, it's difficult to deny when you look at that, that, um, we, that, not that, that you know, we don't have uh, issues at play, right? Um, or things that merit uh, a deeper study and a deeper understanding. Um, now, when I share that, people go, oh, well, maybe we, you don't have those underrepresented groups that are educated. And I, I love to hear that because it's very interesting, especially when you're looking within the context of women. Because guess what? Women have been out earning men in degree since like, like decades ago, right? So, so that's not the problem. And even like looking at the study itself, the mere fact that you had more broad representation of these underrepresented groups at that entry level also supports the fact that the talent um, at the entry position is largely there. But where things fall apart, especially in this context, is how those talents have been honed and developed and given access to opportunity and have access to sponsorship and have been invited to have a seat at the table that is what is largely missing, especially in this context, so that we start seeing a lot of those people or employees of, you know, these um, underrepresented groups start trailing off each rung of that ladder so that the story is entirely different. You, you are sharing so many things as making me think and just open up about, I could take this in so many different ways because it's such a interesting and vast subject. You mentioned something, and I have cut you off in your thought there, but you mentioned something, and something my observation is, every time I go to a DEI training or event, I see that it's mainly actually facilitated by white women. Mm-hmm. And I see that. So is that something you see or um, is that just something that I'm actually seeing just by 
as you mentioned that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to the DEI space specifically, I haven't looked at the data over the last like year and a half, but, um, sometime or the last year, sometime, I believe in early 2022, um, I did look at the data and at the time, um, or maybe two years ago, at the time, a majority of people that worked in the DEI space were actually white women. Um, I do know that, you know, post-pandemic, especially post-George Floyd, uh, there's been a little bit more um, intentional act to bring under other underrepresented groups. So like, you know, um, um, you know, African-American Black employees bring, you know, uh, Latino Asians to the fold. Uh, but yes, like a couple of years ago, um, I believe the stat was that, you know, the people um, of the demographic of people that largely worked in DI space were white women. With that said, though, um, I think this is work that actually does require everybody to be involved. Um, I don't think that this is work for Black people um, or, you know, Asians or Latinos. Uh, like, I mean, I think this is work that everybody should be involved because we all bring our own unique experiences, right? So obviously, like a Black person working in this space would, you know, most likely have like a lived experience as being someone that's oppressed or someone that's been marginalized and, you know, not had access. Um, but, you know, to solve the problem, we also need people that have had the opposite experience as well, right? Um, and we particularly need the people that are in the rooms where we are not, the people that have the decision-making powers, right, that can actually um, make the decisions that, that result in real change, right? So I, I do think that we do need to have... Um, basically everybody involved, I, either involved directly or plugged in as an ally or, you know, whatever um, level of um, interest that they have in this work. I agree with that. Early on, you talked about blind spots, and I think there are multitudes of solutions. And so that helps with helping you with your solutions. You also early on said that, you know, training is not the only answer. Right. What are yeah. some of the most effective in interventions in the DEI space? Yeah. So, I, you know, when it comes to DEI work, I think really the most. So, you know, I talk to a lot of organizations that are trying to wrap their heads around how to go about this. And I think one of the most critical things organizations can do at the very, very beginning of this work is you need to have an internal person um, that is focused on this work. So what I mean by that is there needs to be a chief diversity officer or chief people officer, whatever you call it, and that person should report directly to the CEO. And why I think that's important is that that person, and not only do they have to report to the CEO, they also have to have powers. Because what you find with, you know, chief diversity officers is sometimes, you know, some organizations put them there, but they actually don't have the power to make decisions. So they still have to lobby the CEO and the executive team um, to, you know, implement anything, to hire additional headcount, 
Uh, sometimes they don't have a budget. Um, and so when you, you know, have things like that, then you have ERGs, employee resource groups, um, and other groups that are really working hard on a grassroots uh, level to, you know, um, drive change within the organization. And then as, you know, their hard work get, moves up the chain, there's ultimately nobody in that boardroom to advocate for all of the work that they just did. So I think that's one of the important pieces. The other piece is you've got to do an assessment, right? So, and that's where data comes in. Like data is important and it needs to be a part of the conversation early on. You need to understand where the organization is, where the areas of opportunity are, and then obviously understanding the organization's goal and priorities, then you can kind of map the opportunities that you see, um, you know, accordingly to align with those larger organization goals. Um, so those are probably going to be one of the things that I say. Now, training is very, very impactful. And if you think about all the things that we want to move the needle on in corporate, so you think about safety training, sexual harassment training, leadership training, we do those all the time because it works. One of training does not work because you cannot drive or make systemic change or even make any notable impact on how somebody views things by just spending an hour, 90 minutes of time and talking to them about it. They're only retaining a small percentage anyway. And so there needs to be a very robust um, you know, training over a period of time. And honestly, it doesn't end, right? It's it's a constant training uh, that organizations need to commit to. I hear you on that because, you know, you mentioned the chief diversity officer being in the room and having the budget. I, I Along with that is actually having resources to really cascade the strategy and then the implementation to help shift the culture in that direction, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Malobi, we had a black president and everyone thought now everything is okay. And then we had some shift in our entire makeup of the country. And I know you're an international person, but because we in the, the U.S., we kind of like saying in that kind of focus, but I, I'll have a world question in a second. But what did you think about that shift and how did that tie into the DEI space? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I think obviously it was very historic um, and incredible that we had, you know, the first, you know, Black president. Um, but I think it is uh, a complete misinterpretation of events to say that we are now in post-racial America. Um, and I know that that was a lot of the sentiments that was expo uh, expressed by a lot of people, uh, certainly before the pandemic and George Floyd, right? Um, and with, uh, you know, George Floyd, um, uh, George Floyd's murder in particular, um, I think that sort of like resurrected, you know, that conversation about, you know, the dynamics and the racial dynamics, certainly, uh, within the country. Um, so, I mean, we're definitely not in post-racial America. Um, if anything, that continues to play a major role, um, you know, across different systems. Uh, so if you look at policing and some of the, 
you know, news that we are seeing. Um, obviously, technology has really made it as you know uh, possible for us to actually see firsthand uh, accounts of of how these events transpire. If you look at housing, same thing. If you look at even like in the banking industry and some of the news um, that we've read recently uh, or over the years about just discrepancies in how um, you know lending has been handled, right? So. Uh, basically, the propensity to reject uh, loan applications of underrepresented groups. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of things that we need to work out um, as a country. Um, and, and I think all of those things are even why DEI is so important, right? Because it really, at its core, is just helping us understand others who are different from us, right? Uh, being able to sort of like understand as much as you can, because you can never fully understand because you're not that person. You don't walk in their shoes. But just getting a glimpse, right? Or understanding um, what it could be like to, to be them and some of the challenges that they face, um, you know? So... So I think, uh, honestly, like the events of the last few years um, really underscore why um, we have a lot of work to do. And obviously embracing DEI is um, one solid way to start tackling these issues that we've, you know, we tend to shy away sometimes uh, away from uh, as a country. Thanks for, uh, you know, sharing that. One of the things I look at from a international landscape and I look at our culture, you talked about our women being the fastest educated group or the most educated group over the past few decades. But leadership is one of the things. So even uh, I talk about the first black president, but we've never had a woman president, right? And I look yeah. at countries that we have actually kind of like, this may sound controversial in some instances, I've looked at countries that we've said are not progressing fast enough but countries like India, countries like Germany is a progressive country, but uh, Germany, England, they've had women leaders. Pakistan has had women leadership and we haven't. You know, yeah. I, I guess, how do you build that into your international landscape of DEI? Yeah, um, I, I find it interesting, right? Um, well, interesting, but 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 not shocking, right? Um, that we haven't, and I, th but I think even like some African countries have had female <laughs> leaders, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's very, very interesting, especially if you look. I mean, like when you're looking, you know, by gender, like women make up a larger part of global population, right? In the U.S., women make up fifty-one percent. So you actually have more women than you have men, marginally more, but 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 more nonetheless. Um, and so. Yeah, it, I mean, it's quite perplexing, but um, but not shocking because that um, I, I don't, I'm going to say attitude, but that's really for lack of a better word um, uh, at the moment. But that that is a tendency that you see permeate everything, right? Um, uh, a few years ago, I was reading um, like articles on um, I think it ended up being like a pledge, no man panels. I don't know if you heard about that, but it was basically all these CEOs and leadership across industries uh, globally basically pledging 
that, you know, when they are asked or invited to an event or conference um, to be on a panel, that they're going to ask if they have women on the panel. Uh, because we were starting to see trends, um, and, and I think that still happens quite a bit today, where you go to events and all the, it might be a seven, you know, member panel and all of them are men, right? Yeah. Uh, and you see that time and time again across like different events and industries. Um, and so you have this movement where, you know, people were signing up and saying, hey, okay, you're inviting me to speak. Okay. I'm interested to speak. Who else is speaking? Do you have women on the panel? Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, to really change things where people can start recognizing that women are just as capable. We need to also see women lead and women take up seats and take up room um, in places that they don't currently do, right? Yeah. Um, and I think until we start seeing that and start really redirecting our thoughts on the capabilities of women, and there's a lot of you know research that shows that actually women leaders um, are able to drive the bottom line of an organization a lot further than uh, their male counterparts, actually. Uh, so there's actually a lot of, you know, studies that show the added benefit of having a female leader. Um, but it's just not as commonplace um, and it's not something that we're used to. And I think ultimately that comes into play when we're looking at our national elections, um, which is unfortunate. But hopefully, in a, in a, you know, uh, that's something that will change in the near future. As we get ready to wrap, I wanted to ask this question before I give you the last word after this question, but why is equity, equality, and fairness important in this whole thing? And I know you were breaking down diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then belonging, but I was just thinking about this whole equity, equality, and fairness. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good question. Um, and, you know, uh, typically in some of our initial conversations uh, with organizations, um, we actually, you know, one of the things that we really try to do is to talk about the difference between equity and equality in particular, uh, because those two things, um, you know, tend to really get confused for for one another. So equality would be Oh, like, you know, we will all get equal treatment or equal things, right? Um, whereas equity takes into account where the person is. So a good illustration, I mean, um, I'm going to kind of try to describe it as much as I can, um, you know, uh, on the call. Um, a good illustration. So imagine you have, let's say, a few individuals, let's say like four people, right? One is a small child. One is an average-sized uh, built woman. Another one is somebody with a physical disability that, you know, uses a, a wheelchair. And then you have an incredibly large man. Now, let's say we want to task those people to go from point A to point B. And point B is, let's say, about a mile, two miles away. Um, and then we give them all the child's size bicycle, right? Under that scenario, probably only the child is going to be able to maneuver that bicycle successfully to get to point B. Because while all the other three have bicycles, those bicycles do not actually work with their frame and their build, right? 
So equality would be giving, oh, well, we need to treat them equally. So we give them all the child size bicycle or we give them the bicycle that is um, suitable for the large man, right? Um, whereas equity requires us to think, okay, what's the larger goal here? Ultimately, the goal is to get to point B. Now, what do we need to give each of these individuals so that they can successfully make that trip from point A to B? And then giving them the right bicycle for, you know, that will meet them, you know, for whatever their physical condition is to be able to make that trip. So I love that sort of like illustration because, um, you know, otherwise, you know, it can be sort of like a tricky concept to understand. But when you put it in that concept, uh, context, it completely makes sense and resonates. It completely makes sense and resonates to me. Actually, I love that story because it actually makes it. Uh, I, I'll, pro I'll probably be using that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> hey, as we as we wrap up, Malobi, one thing I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your company, and then, hey, what's the last word you'd have to say before we wrap? Absolutely, uh, no, thank you. Uh, this has been wonderful having this conversation with you. So, I'm the founder of DEI Directive, and we're a diversity, equity, and inclusion and employee engagement technology firm. Uh, ultimately, what we do is really help organizations um, work proactively to improve their DEI health. And we do that by giving them you know, access to real-time and comprehensive data that they need to get the deep insights so that they can make better decisions around their organization's DEI health. Um, and of course, when they do this, uh, this ensures that the... Uh, their efforts and all those DEI initiatives that they are working so hard on will yield real impacts and those impacts can be sustainable long-term. So that's pretty much what we do. Um, and, and what I would say is, you know, I would just say in the, because I feel like over the last couple of months, there's a little bit more chatter around like DEI fatigue, right? Um, and so I'll kind of like reiterate, you know, what I said uh, earlier on the call is that, you know, DEI really is a very important and necessary, um, you know, uh, thing for organizations to take seriously and really figure out um, what the approach is within their organization, because it's not like a one approach, you know, fits all, um, but it's something that organizations have to. The demographic evolution with of our workplace and, you know, Gen Z and millennials uh, pushing and wanting to work in organizations that they know that they can feel a sense of belonging and they feel like they, they are included when they get there. That's increasingly a really important uh, factor in people deciding where to work. And then also when you look at what's happening with, um, you know, sort of like the labor short, shortage um, and the, you know, the labor shortage and the fact that the millennials and Gen Z are the most racially uh, diverse, um, you know, uh, demographic in U.S. history and globalization and all these things. Uh, Basically, there are many, many factors that are pushing us to really embrace DEI and be proactive today, not tomorrow, but be proactive to ensure that we can be competitive and are able to compete for these talents down the line. So those will sort of be my, um, I guess, the last thing I say. <laughs> hey, Malobi, thank you so very much for taking the time to have a conversation with me and share your wisdom and knowledge around 
this whole space around DE and I. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. I've enjoyed our conversation.